And Young, welcome to our Made a Huge Mistake, an Arrested Development podcast. My name is Darren, I'm your host, and with me today I'm joined by two guests. First of all, I have returning guest uh, Keith Allison. Hello, Keith. Hi, Young. And I have returning guest Enrique, and I will leave him to tell you the name of his podcast. Hello, Enrique. Hi, Darren. <laughs> well, I'm Enrique, and I'm host of the El Stream Mató al Cable podcast, but it's a TV-related podcast, literally the stream killed cable. And I'm glad to be here again, commenting on the development. We're going to be discussing episode 8 of season 3, Making a Stand. Um, it's worth noting the, the original title for this episode was Lessons. So, That's obviously, you know... A bit less memorable, but maybe a bit also more in accordance with like what is, like I guess, the main bullet point of the episode point. It was the final episode broadcast in 2005. Um, it was broadcast on the 19th of December... And it was written by Mitch Hurwitz, and it's the first of three episodes written by Chuck Tatham, and it is the final episode directed by Peter Lauer. And the summary is as follows. Uh, Michael and Job set out to teach their father a lesson for his years of pitting them against each other. Lindsay and Tobias compete over Bob Loblaw, and Lucille's post-op appearance inspires Maybe. I think actually that, that summary misses out the key point, which is the whole rivalry between... Uh, you know, Michael and Joe, which, you know, has been bubbling under for pretty much the entire run of the show. Right. Uh, in and it's various been, you know, forms. And it's been uh, erupting quite a bit. <laughs> have a habit of getting into a fight. Something which we'll find out goes back to their childhoods. It all revolves around this idea to put up a, a, a separate banana stand, you know, the location of which becomes a, a bone of contention. And I think it's interesting, actually, because in the episode, the idea to have the second banana stand is Michael's. Um, but later on, when Job is kind of found out, he he, he reveals that um, George Senior decided all of the other details, like its location and its look and everything else. Bizarrely, George Senior neglected to give them the recipe to throw some bananas for this stand. That is a good point. Uh, <laughs> which is a, a, one of my favourite jokes, um, you know, in this in this particular episode. Um, but let's you know start at the beginning of the episode because obviously. Uh, we're in we're in a Bluth Company meeting, and as always, they are basically a bunch of people who don't want to be in this room, and who are kind of half asleep being talked to by Michael. Um, and he's he's talk he says this thing where he goes, uh, "The last couple of months have seen us hemorrhaging money," and as he says this, Job shoots out all his money from his uh, his suit, which is one of the kind of two tricks that Job has ready. Uh, for this particular meeting, <laughs> I like, I like that um, you know Job when he asks to speak because he has a business opportunity, which is weird because Michael says uh, you know we're gonna have to wait until after lunch for the tricks, and when Job says it's not a trick, Michael, he doesn't correct it to illusion for you know maybe the first time he he kind of actually there's been a few times this season where he's kind of let that go, but he doesn't bother correcting it at all, um, and. I think this might be the final episode in the original run that features um, Steve Holt. Here, entering with a boombox, playing the final countdown. Yes, he does. Um, There's a lot of, a lot of is... synergy between him and his father in this episode that you don't often see throughout the show. Yeah, I really yeah. like how they interact together. They make a very nice couple of father and son. You know, Gary, also, yeah. just briefly going to your point about him... Uh, the difference in correcting, I kind of wondered if maybe part of that was because of the different profession that he that Job is situating himself with. Because, you know, so much when he's saying, like, it's an illusion, it's not a trick, it's so often to, like, add the prestige or the gravity to his status as a magician or as somebody in the uh, magician's community. And here now he's trying to, like, play with the big players of the business. So he's, like, trying to 
add that same gravity, but now it's a business pitch instead of a instead of an illusion for his little tricks. Yeah, I guess, I guess yeah, because he you know he he says it's a business opportunity, and of course he's he ha- he does he does, but the way he says that you know like as as if it's a, a cue for Steve Holt to enter, like with a kind of flourish, and then I like of course that. Job, you know, he says, uh, this is something that actually is a bit of a running joke for Job, where he says, Okay, you can turn the music off, I already shot my one. Off. Uh, and okay. he, as, as Steve Holt tries to turn the music off, he switches to tape. Oh, that's tape! And <laughs> for some reason, Job has a tape of It Ain't Easy Being White in his, um, his tape deck. The weirdest thing being, of course, that when he recorded, you know, um, Franklin Comes Alive, it was only as a CD for Michael, and there was only one of them. It's it's odd that he also seems to... Maybe he's just kind of copied it to tape for, to keep for himself so he could give the original to Michael. And I like, of course, that he, say, he says, I've got a quick way for us to be literally showered with money. And, of course, there's a, a slight pause as he he kind of goes, that's where the petty thing... like. And then one last kind of penny shoots out and breaks the the, the glasses of uh, Tom. Tom or the Tom, right? Yes, Tom. And I think another one goes out later and breaks a window or something like that. Yeah, something. I think another one shoots out. Yes, in an inopportune moment. <laughs> <laughs> a second one shoots out when he does some air quoting, and I I like that he says um, it involves us making money with our Mexican friends from Colombia, and he looks around the room as if people are gonna think this is a great idea and that this is brilliant but but instead michael just says i think they're called colombians um and of course this is where job shoots a second penny and it, it breaks something off screen and i have a feeling that both of those pennies are cgi like the the two extra pennies that shoot out if you watch it again they seem a little kind of fake right <laughs> but you know on a, t- on a tv budget in 2005 yeah, it was, not too yeah, bad i was gonna say it's a possibility but i was gonna also say like that well that's pretty admirable what they spent for the uh Spent part, that part of the budget on a CGI penny for a gag there when they knew that they were running low by that point. <laughs> yeah. Or they were just burning up money. Yeah, they, <laughs> they were just like <laughs> they came spend under budget. <laughs> In fact, it's it's worth noting actually that this episode is pretty much a bottle episode. It only takes place on the the the, the kind of main standing sets. The only the only set there isn't a main standing set is the one where they have the preview for Gangi. But yeah. even that, I I think it looks like. It could possibly be one of the screening rooms at Fox anyway, so not not a set, you know, just a, an existing location. So they were probably saving money up for the CGI pennies. And, of course, uh, <laughs> I like that uh, Job, he proposes that they're going to sell some blueprints for 100 grand. Uh, and Michael points out how illegal it is. <laughs> I love this moment. This is probably my favorite moment in the entire show between a father and a son where <laughs> Job goes, Translation, wish I'd thought of that. And Steve Holt immediately chimes in with, Nice translating, Dad. Dad. <laughs> and it's just, so, it, and the thing is, it's like a weirdly touchy moment because, like, this is the, like, Job has spent basically four episodes hiding from Steve Holt and, you know, to the point of having a touchy moment with him and then taking a forget me now. But here, he just seems to be embracing Steve Holt for the first time. But you can totally tell from those few lines he has that he is totally, like, overcompensating to make sure that he is supporting his father and letting his father know that he's being supported. But is Steve compensating for Job's failures or is Steve as dumb as to believe that Job is smart enough? To, to come up with a good plan. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But I like how he jumps in as well, with it, where, you know, um, 
you know, Job's, Job says, uh, it's not stupid, you're stupid. And Steve Holt immediately goes, nice pal, Dad. <laughs> um, so I like how supportive he's being of Job, because, you know, this is something that, as we know, um, as was established in the pilot, Lucille doesn't care for Job. That seems to be reflected in most of the other members of the family. They're not really fans of Job. So it's really nice in this episode to have Steve Holt, like, being so supportive uh, and and kind of you know so um, you know like just uh, just backing up his dad so much. And I think to Enrique's point, I think there's a little bit of maybe both in regards to his perception of Joe because on the one hand, like his supportiveness, like you do get that sense that he holds Job on a pedestal. But as we see like later in the episode when Job and Michael are like getting into their competitiveness and Steve and George and Michael are trying to like pull them both back, you can get a sense of like. Steve trying to inject some pragmatism like, it might be best if we team up because we don't know the recipe, so <laughs> this might not work out too well for us. <laughs> and I, I like, of course, you know, Michael obviously puts Job down and I love um, Will Arnett's reading of If I didn't have a live dove in my pants right now, I would leap across this table. <laughs> and of course, he then goes to try and take the dove out of his pants so he can leap across the table. And Michael just goes, uh, let's go ahead and take five. And everyone starts to leave. <laughs> right. uh, which is, I think, how every Bluth meeting kind of ends is with everyone in this boardroom always seems to want to just get out of there as soon as possible uh, you know when michael goes to his his office he finds Lindsay there this is where we find out about boy fights i like how it's it's kind of subtly brought up because of course you know Lindsay says you two have always fought i even think i have a video of that and of course michael just goes you and half of orange county it's funny that up until this point we've never heard about boy fights i don't think we needed this joke to be you know a, a more long-running joke but it's odd that basically kind of five episodes from the end we're suddenly getting this bit of backstory. Um, yeah, and, and it's, you know, and it's also interesting. It's the, of Red yeah, it is. But also, like, you know, when I was rewatching this episode, I had forgotten about boy fights, honestly. So when Lindsay initially said that line, I thought she was just referencing, like, any of the various fights that Michael and jo that Job have had over the last two and a half seasons. Because my mind immediately went to the season two finale where they, like, fight in front of a courthouse. And I was like... Well, maybe there were yeah. some cameras there that were recording that or something. Like, I could have easily... <laughs> well, that I mean, technically speaking, with with the kind of crew that is around, yeah, exactly. there were some cameras that were recording <laughs> yeah, that. So. That's a good point. <laughs> it's, it's almost... It almost works on a couple of levels there. But, yeah, and and this is where we get a flashback to the, you know, the young Michael and Joe, uh, George Sr. kind of egging them on to fight. And, of course, he also keeps saying, let's keep it in frame, which I like as well. Like, he wants them to fight, but he also wants them to keep it... <laughs> In a space that he can film. And of course the narrator tells us the story of it where he says he believed that the Tussles would be a big hit in the burgeoning home video market. He soon franchised the concept with titles such as Boy Fights 2, A Boy Fights Cookout, and Backseat Boy Fights, The Trip to Uncle Jack's 70th. Um, <laughs> now, given, given that we know that Uncle Jack was, what, 90 in the episode that he appeared in when he was in Ready Aim, Marry Me... That means that, yeah. you know, the the, the the final boy fight is set about um, 20 years ago, which actually makes them a little too young because um, when Michael says he wants to get rid of Job, Lucille says that ship sailed 35 years ago, which is so... I don't, the, the timeline is a little confusing because when we found out Michael's birthday, um, or when we do find out Michael's birthday in a couple of episodes' time, it, it actually makes him a lot older, so... Um, things are a little confusing there in terms of the timeline, but I do want to just quickly mention the um, the, the baby Buster shorts uh, 
uh, which get which get brought up later on, and the the name Baby Buster gets brought up when Buster goes into a light to no coma. Um, some might call it a heavy sleep in later episodes, um, <laughs> and um, I can't remember what the first title was. The first um, first Baby Buster short, which is you know comes with the boy fights. Boy fights two actually has the tagline at the top: "Boys will be boys," <laughs> which seems like putting the word "boy" a lot of times on the. On something called boy fights that has pictures of two boys fighting, and I like as well that the the young Job has a kind of um, a very colourful shirt that sort of fits with the stuff that that Job kind of wears later in life. You know, Baby Buster, it, he's he's in the corner of each of these these videos, and uh, on one it says "too old to breastfeed." In comics, in Comic Sans as well. That's the that's the the great thing. They they finish it off in Comic Sans, and then another one is a fifth grader wets his bed, um, and the the final one where, where he's he's basically being elbowed by both Job and Michael in the in the back seat of the car. Um, it says "cry baby Buster," not just "baby Buster." And it says, I don't want to be on this tape, which I think is probably the greatest. <laughs> yeah, and I think, the, uh, I think the first one is, uh, I don't want to go to bed. So over the course of those, you just get the gradual sense of them being much more emasculating to, to Buster <laughs> to go along. Yes. Was there in America a burgeoning home video market for your senior to start these, these uh, boy fights videos? At some point during the during thirty years ago, I think so because I think I think it's implying that it was like around the time VHS was really becoming a big uh, a big sort of market in America. So like around that time, like you were starting to see tapes that you could rewind and see movies on again and again. Like that's when these boy fights videos are probably being circulated. Like oh, catching on to this, just uh, it's a product here yeah. for people to really just latch on to. I think it's weird because obviously I, I feel like entry into the VHS market was fairly low simply because you could buy blank tapes quite easily and you could make your own and you could copy them. You know, like I, th I feel like that's an, e that's an easy technology whereas, you know, entering into say d the DVD market is probably a little harder. I'd say streaming is actually probably a lot easier. In fact, YouTube has kind of mm -hmm. almost taken away oh, yeah. the need for that. Uh, yeah. And obviously... You know, then then what boy fights is is kind of referencing is bum fights, um, which if you if if you are English is a, a completely different um, uh, kind of yeah. So I don't really want to get into bum fights because I don't I don't think we need to talk about that because it's not a pleasant thing. But I just yeah. it's I just kind of like how kind of very kind of 2005-ish that kind of reference is. I, I like, of course, once we get back from the flashback, Lindsay's like, how do you think I feel? And Michael goes, you weren't even on the tapes. And then, of course, she's like, <laughs> uh, I was talking about my marriage. Um, and I like when she goes, are we still talking about the tapes? Michael's like, apparently not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's, yeah. But how, I, how quickly the conversation moves with siblings. I do kind of find it's a nice beat, though, because it's like in past episodes, you've seen like, you know, Michael and Lindsay closer to each other than the other siblings are. And I even though like this back and forth and the conversation between them is a little bit of a antagonistic or poking tone, like I feel like they do it with enough of a sort of lightness that you still kind of get that sense of basic like uh, cord yeah. cordiality uh, between the two of them that kind of reflects a, an actual sort of kinship. Like, oh, yeah, I guess we're off of my thing. Let's hear about yours and make some <laughs> jokes about that. 
<laughs> I think also Michael is the one who is being concerned about Lindsay's marriage the most as the, as the show has gone on. You know, he was the one who was willing to pay off her credit card debts to help her out. You know, he's he's been the one who's been, you know, even with the, um, you know, when they had the, uh, the, the kind of Valentine's thing at the auction, you know, he's bid on his sister, yep. you know, to help her out. You know, like, so he, he does genuinely care about her and he is kind of concerned about her marriage. So you know, it's it's you know, it's I don't think he cares really that they're off talking about boy fights, um, and I like of course that Lindsay you know talks about how she's had a secret thing with Bob Loblaw, and Michael says very secret. Does he even know? Um, and of course, Lindsay when she phrases it, he has not known of it, which is such a great kind of. That's correct. Even when she took like Hope Loblaw to the ch- the Church and State Fair and kind of entered her into the competition singing a song about, you know, having a sexual relationship um, and kind of directly pointed her towards blah, blah, blah. He didn't seem to get it. You know, obviously Scott Bio uh, these days is a slightly more divisive character, you know, in real life. But I do love his his line reading where he says... um, Look, I'm not blind. You're an attractive woman and you've been dressing like a common whore. And I, I just think he, he kind of really stresses that last word. And the, the funny thing is, of course, is he brings up, a, a, you know, a good reason for why he's basically ignored all of the overt kind of flirting that Lindsay has been doing, where, <laughs> you know, he says, you asked me to represent you in, a, in your divorce. I can't see a client. Like, that's correct. Like, it, it's not like, you know, he, he's, he's kind of, she's been dressing up as like a sexy maid and going on about how she wants to have sex on a horse and all kinds of weird things. And he's kind of almost ignored them because she was the one who said, right. you know, I want a divorce. And he, you know, represented her. So um, I think it's interesting, you know, and I, I like as well that when, when um, you know, she wants a recommendation, he's like, our copy boy is very striking, yeah. but he often has toner on his fingers. Like, he, he does the classic blues thing of misunderstanding what someone was asking about. All that said, it does become kind of subverted later on. We find out that he, when he does, like, eventually back off of Lindsay, he then goes ahead and takes Tobias' side instead, which is, even though he's against Lindsay in the case, is a huge conflict of interest in its, in its own right. And he puts her <laughs> yeah, disadvantage by openly saying before the uh, deposition or the talk, like, do not, make sure not to bring this up for my name. I don't want you know, to be hurt by that association. And then he openly antagonizes her for questions about like, oh, you're going to see a man later tonight, right? <laughs> and that's just step over. Yeah, I don't think that's ethical in any kind of way. <laughs> so it's like he, yeah. one step forward, two steps back with blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we'll see how that and, goes in his blah, blah. <laughs> of course, Lindsay hasn't said to maybe, I mean, it's funny because she says, I now have to tell Tobias we're getting divorced and break the news to maybe. Which at this point, you know, the the kind of the amount of flirting Lindsay's been doing with blah blah blah, I would think both of them were kind of aware of that. But obviously, um, Tobias is very self-involved, so I can understand why that would have gone over his head. Right. Um, uh, Michael suggests getting the uh, you know eyebrow, eyebrow pluck at the same time as telling maybe, so it looks like her eyes are watering because she's sad. Right. And uh, it, which you know, and it's kind of suggests great response from Portia de Rossi yeah. too to that because okay, she doesn't really like. She doesn't fully, like, take it in as a, oh, that's a good point, or battle off as a, oh, that's insulting. It's just more of a, a register <laughs> to end the beat on, and then it cuts the next scene, which I like quite a bit. Yeah. We now get to kind of the second kind of main plot, which is um, twofold, and that is Lucille and the apartment both getting a makeover. 
Um, <laughs> and I, I, of course, we have the the three uh, Guatemalan uh, decorators who are, you know, going to be redoing the inside of the apartment while the outside is being done. Um, and of course, uh, Lucille, as ever, has such a wonderful attitude towards uh, immigrants, <laughs> where she says, "What's Spanish for? I know you speak English." Um, <laughs> Which, go for it, Enrique. I can I can say that in Spanish. Yo sé que sabes inglés. It's it's kind of funny how the the whole family treats. I mean, Michael tries to appear like he's so upstanding, but he also makes kind of uh, inappropriate comments like Lucille should sleep with her eyes open because the painters might kill her. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it's not like uh, only Lucille and. And your senior that are kind of dismissive of the painters, also Michael. He automatically assumes well, that they could be violent. Also... I think he, I think rightfully so, though, because the way that they're being treated, you know, I would under, I kind of understand, you know, the, the kind of the, uh, the the thought that maybe they might try something. And Lucille here, you know, she she makes a point of saying that the paint fumes are going to be deadly, and of course Michael goes. You do realise Dad's under house arrest. And I like how she takes the question as, he's going to be stuck here and, and you're stuck here. And she's like, yeah, it'd be nice to get a break from him too. Um, <laughs> this is where she reveals that she's also going to be getting a, a makeover. Michael says, I hope you kept your punch card. You're about due for a free one. Um, which elicits quite the look from uh, Jessica Walters as he says that. George is treating the workers poorly here when when he says that you know they need to uh, you know kind of... I think the issue is he wants them to buy their own paint and then he's going to pay them later on, which doesn't seem... Because, yeah, it says uh, he's, well, not, he's not paying them at all until they finish all the work, apparently, is his line. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, they do bring up yeah. later in the episode that he forces them to pay for all of their own supplies, apparently, when, they, when they're <laughs> making the... to uh, me just seems crazy. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't think... That, you know, Michael makes a point that, um, you know, Job has brought up this illegal Colombian deal. And of course, Lucille goes, you said it was legal. And then Michael goes, that was your idea. And I like how George is like, I might have mentioned it. Um, which, of course, then brings up the Boy Fights videos. And these three painters are huge fans of Boy Fights for some reason. Uh, because the mention of Boy Fights brings up... Um, well, the first one says Luchas del, del Muchachos, which I don't, I'm not quite sure of the full translation of that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I think it's game. incorrect. It will be Luchas de Muchachos, boy fights, as fights for, of, of boys. But okay. yeah, it's kind of the, the classical wonky Spanish translation that American shows use. It's, it's kind of fun. So for you, there's like an extra layer of jokes going on here. Uh, with the translation. Yeah, it's additionally the poor translation. And the fact that somehow these tapes of white kids fighting and being taped by their father are somehow a bit hit in Latin America. I don't know why <laughs> they will be, but it's kind of kind of weird. Well, apparently the apparently the VHS market in Latin America was huge in the 80s. Maybe people like privileged white kids fighting each other for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Of course, Lucille says she had nothing to do with the boy fights except some of the Baby Buster shorts. Um, <laughs> which I like the fact that she kind of, like, she didn't want to do, like, the whole, like, whatever George Sr. was taping. Like, I'd say it's like an hour or something on that tape. She just wanted to do, like, a ten-minute thing at the beginning. Almost like a Pixar-type thing. It's, exactly. it's kind of it's kind of very artistic of her just to do the shorts. This is where they get into, like, an argument about how Buster is being brought up. Now, I think it's obvious to anyone who's been watching the show that Buster is 
like not being brought up well by Lucille. You know, she he's she's being you know she's coddling him far too much, um, and this episode kind of emphasizes it. Um, and of course, <laughs> upon hearing the name Buster, um, the 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 painters are once again you know <laughs> they they start kind of. Uh, doing the the impression where they're like, uh, I, ca- I can't do it. Enrique, well, if, yeah, if you they know did, the line. They say a pretty okay. creepy phrase. <laughs> it's... Yeah, they say that Buster, this, well, in Spanish, yo quiero leche de madre, which is, which is very creepy because it's like he wants his mother's milk and I guess, I don't remember how old Buster must have been at the time of the too, not too old to breastfeed, uh, baby Buster short. Well, he's in on the on the too old to breastfeed picture. He seems quite old. I mean, that's just before the the fifth grader wets his bed. So what are we talking like nine, ten? Yeah, uh, just, just about. Around yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I, I like it as well how they switch into English and they finish with even though I'm so old, which is <laughs> such a kind of if you don't understand the Spanish, I think even you can even get from that line what is going on. And I like as well how Michael kind of lampshades the whole thing by saying, well, those tapes made quite an impression on these three painters. <laughs> and that is, that is like such a funny, because it's almost like you would think to yourself, why do these, why are these three painters, so, like, why do they know so much about this? And I just like how Michael kind of points that out almost as if to be, why, why do they know so much about these, yeah, and uh, it's also, these boy fights tapes? It's also a thing where you maybe wonder if like Michael, because like the narrator is the one who tells us they were big in Latin America, but for all we know, like that's something that Michael wouldn't be privy to at all. So for him to see that yeah. kind of enactment going on, he might be just as surprised. Like, how did these painters get copies of this? How did they get access? How did they become so aware of it? Throughout the years, Buster. At this particular point, he starts saying some kind of odd phrases where he's like, "I think I pretty, I turned out pretty darn well myself." Just <laughs> <laughs> such a weird thing. And we find out that he had been employed at an Iraqi-owned toy star, um, uh, where you know the the owner wanted to deter shoplifting. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the name is is obviously a play on FAO Schwartz. Instead, it's FAO Al Jabali Mohammed Albat. Which is such a such a great joke because Buster says it in a moment, um, in possibly one of my favourite visual jokes this show has ever committed because it is so great. Um, but you know, Mister Al Jabali Mohammed Abbat just wanted to have someone with a missing hand, basically. And this, of course, this is another kind of this kind of goes in concert with the whole kind of main storyline between Joe and Michael, where um, Buster doesn't want people to use people with missing limbs to teach people lessons. Buster says they only wanted me because I had one hand and I won't do it. That's not the way mother is raising me, which is, <laughs> you know, a, a, a creepy way to phrase it. But of course, Michael then picks up on it by saying, and I won't compete with my older brother anymore, despite the way father raised me. And I've never, like, never heard him refer to George Senior as father. That's such a, a really weird thing. Uh, and of course, this is where Buster says, um, you know, after Michael says, we'll show you, Buster goes, just like I showed Mr. Al-Jabali Mohammed Abbat, I stole the sign. And then he pulls up this sign that just says, I stole. And I, I can't tell you how much I love this joke, because it's it's kind of so hard to explain why it's so funny, but it's just so perfect. The fact that he stole a sign that says, I stole, which is evidence that he stole, and he, that's what he stole. And it's just... I don't know. The word stole seems to be losing all meaning for me there, but it's just so well done that you, I, like the way he just pulls it up and everyone just stares at him and then it cuts back to him and then he has to t- say, of course, well, I left my hand 
And then when we cut back to the shop, we see the hand with the sign saying he stole. That just makes it so... And it's just so great. Because it's also great because the shop owner now has everything he wants at a bus trip, but now he doesn't have to pay him anymore. <laughs> he just has the he hand. Work. We see that Keith is still stealing stuff from the store, so it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's just so great. It's only... It's like one of the probably... Like such a, it's a like three second joke, but it's just so well done. And we find out here that um, you know maybe um, <laughs> identified here as the third youngest movie studio executive uh, is having trouble getting people scared uh, about uh, a creature that is called the Bloodsucker by Mort Myers. Um, now, of course, she is the third youngest studio executive because at this particular moment in time, the Olsen twins. We're number one and number two, um, and that is <laughs> such a such an odd joke. I had completely forgotten about it until I looked it up on the Arrest Development wiki to check. <laughs> I saw it on the wiki. I thought it was a throwaway line, like some joke, but it's true. <laughs> I like as well how Mort Myers here says it looks like Alf, and then the man in the film goes, "That must be the creature that ate our cat." Um, which is such a very specific like Alf joke, you know, which to younger people. You know, was a sitcom that featured a puppet living with a family who was an alien, uh, which you know makes it sound so. I mean, I don't understand that you could say that premise and people would be like, "Oh yeah, that's that's easily a, a top ten sitcom." You know, Michael and Job start trying to conspire against their father, and I love how throughout every stage of this, Job is useless, but Michael seems to know that Job is going to be useless, and therefore he. He he almost builds that into all of the plans, so, so you know he he knows that he's going to betray him at some point, so he kind of keeps that. And of course, to start off with, though, Job is kind of very cooperative. <laughs> Although the funny thing is, when talking about the Colombian scheme, Job says that you know Michael thinks that he isn't smart. Now Michael doesn't contradict that, of course, um, and Job is there trying to put he's putting um, food down his pants and. <laughs> <laughs> and this is because you don't want a hungry dove down there. He says that's how Tony Wonder lost a nut, which is like such a yep. weird thing that he would know. Got a good, got a good uh, image of Ben Stiller just now. <laughs> <laughs> and we we get, of course, the ongoing storyline, which won't be fully revealed until the final episode of the show, where uh, Job has got a Christian girlfriend. It, it, here, it seems to imply the only reason that he's reconnected with Steve Holt is in an attempt to prove something to what we later find out is Anvil. I don't know why she would care about Steve Holt and Job being closer, but and I like how, as he's explaining all this, Michael goes, as always, Job, a mixed bag there, but the middle part sounded pretty admirable for a second. <laughs> Which is just like... The middle part is actually where he's saying he's going to reconnect with his son. Yes, be a better um, man, basically. <laughs> I like here how he says you can franch let's franchise the banana stand, which I'm surprised that after like 30 years of this banana stand existing, they haven't already done this. Like <laughs> it seems odd that they've kept just one banana stand. You know, if if frozen bananas are worth so much, it would seem like they would have had a second stand somewhere else at some point. Uh, so here he suggests, you know, have a second banana stand, have Steve work at it, much like George Michael works at the banana stand. And I, I like as well how, you know, Job is like, you do that for me. And of course, he's like, you can design your own shack. And Job's like, choose my own location. And I like that he's like, you're 100% in charge. Most important thing is we don't let dad turn us against each other. Of course, 
once the stand is built, we'll realise that that is the exact opposite of you know what, what happens with Job. Um, and I like, of course, as they hug, Job says, "If you feel something moving down there, it's just the bird." <laughs> I know it. Yeah, it's good. It's a good thing he's had the bird in this entire time since the meeting <laughs> from before. <laughs> it's not a Gilligan cut quite, but we we cut to the narrator saying, a few days later, Michael got a call from his son. And George Michael is like, did you know Job started a banana stand? And Michael's kind of like, yes. And he's, he's like, I'm trying to get us to be less competitive. And of course, George Michael goes, it's going to be difficult. Plus, they have a very aggressive slogan. And of course, the, the slogan is a... Uh... And a lot of that is um, a callback to a previous bit in the episode at the meeting when uh, Job was talking about his deal with uh, the Colombians and saying, like, this is something that won't, like, stab and kill you as well. And he, yeah. he, and he even... The cartel that won't kill you. Yeah, and, he even, yes. and he even says, like, the uh, I underlined like the won't because that implies that our competitors <laughs> do do it. <laughs> the venture with the Colombians... Uh, was going to be the Bluth Moreno Company. And, of course, Moreno being an anagram for No More, uh, which would have made it the Bluth No More Company. Uh, obviously, um, Mitch Hurwitz feeling the, the kind of the cancellation coming down the pipe, I feel. <laughs> um, and I like how the narrator says, um, <laughs> when, when, they, when they, they cut to the next scene after the break, and, and he, he says, Job had opened a new frozen banana stand like... 20 feet from the old frozen banana stand. And uh, I think that the placement of like by Ron Howard in that sentence is just perfect. I like how when Job does did the research, he goes, did you know more frozen bananas are sold here on this boardwork than anywhere else in the OC? <laughs> and it's like, well, it's obvious why, because it's the only banana stand in the OC. Um, and of course, Michael, as becomes customary in this season, he says, don't call it that. Um, <laughs> Uh, and something which actually Bob Loblaw will say later on. I like as well how <laughs> Job says, we're going to need a check because we went out of pocket on the new sign and I'm going to need some bananas and some chocolates. <laughs> Basically, you know, he, he's going to need everything. Um, and of course, I like here how, you know, Michael's like, you know, you don't even have bananas, so I'm not worried. In fact, we're going to kick your little shack's ass. And of course, George Michael and Steve Holt both try to de-escalate it and this is where we get possibly the the greatest line in the episode where George Michael in reply to Steve Holt saying that they don't know the recipe he says there's no recipe you just freeze a banana and then stick it in there and Michael just intervenes and says don't tell them and of course Steve Holt's like stick it in the wine stick it in the wine <laughs> and, and, and it's like I think the recipe for a frozen banana is pretty easy, but I just like that because he cuts him off, he can't figure out what the recipe is. It's okay, son. We'll figure it out. <laughs> and when we do, we'll be the laughing stock of the boardwalk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, of course, suggests that Job doesn't know what, what a laughing stock is. <laughs> or the fact that they already are a laughing stock. Um, <laughs> and I, I like, of course, how um, you know that cuts back to um, Lindsay. Um, being introduced to her new lawyer, uh, technically speaking, not yet a lawyer, <laughs> where uh, she's introduced to Treat, and um, Bob Loblaw says, he started off as my paralegal, but he's a lawyer now, and of course Treat goes, as of next Monday, and of course Bob Loblaw just goes, we'll fudge that. It suggests that Bob Loblaw is as bad as Barry Zuckercorn was at being a lawyer, because he's just kind of, you know, doing things... 
And then, of course, this is where, you know, blah, blah, blah says, don't mention me by name when you talk about your future dating plans. Um, and Lindsay brings up conflict of interest. And, of course, blah, blah, blah is like, yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> uh, and when Tobias says that uh, blah, blah, blah is the best looking and best educated lawyer in the whole OC, blah, blah, blah immediately says, don't call it that. We get a call back here to a joke from a few episodes earlier where Lindsay was on the phone being explicit and uh, Tobias, in sitting in pretty much the exact same pose as Lindsay was on the bed, he says, you want me to be explicit? Um, and then, of course, um, <laughs> Tobias goes, as it turns out, Bob was offering to be my lawyer. Um, so I like how Bob Blah Blah basically knows how to make money off of kind of stupid rich people because he just moved from Lindsay to Tobias. So he basically is probably getting roughly the same amount of money. Um and we get to meet the post-op Lucille. Uh, Jessica Walters, for the rest of this episode, doesn't really say that much. Um, but they kind of... I, I like here how Buster kind of brings her in to the model home. And he starts translating for her because she just kind of is mumbling. Um, and <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of builds up to the point where I think Lucille just doesn't want to have Buster sleeping in the same room as her. And Buster screams, um, <laughs> you better not lock it, I'll kick it in. <laughs> Which is a, a level of aggression from Tony Hale that we don't normally see. Adding to the stuff from earlier with the painters, Buster says, Doctor said no kissing her on the face for one week. And I was like, make it two weeks. See if I care. Which is great because I, I think, I mean, he could, the doctor easily could have just been talking about like with her husband or something. But I like to think that... He probably sees Lucille and Buster come in for Lucille's stuff every time they come in and probably knows their relationship well enough to specifically warn Buster about about the procedure's consequences. Yes. Well, George Senior's George Senior's in the house arrest, so he couldn't go to the doctors with her, could he? So But I think part of it is like and of course, just assuming that like uh even if like she was at home, for example, like, you know, he might he might think that he'd be saying that like oh if you're with your husband like at the end of the night like just be wary of that but it's like no 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 just like I know what goes on here just Buster watch out for the next couple of weeks okay and of course Buster has a new hand and this has led him to Jay Walter Weatherman who is telling a young girl and that's why you don't take your foot out of its wrapper um, and this is the final appearance of Jay Walt Weatherman. Um, the actor who played him, who was also bizarrely on the West Wing at roughly the same time, um, <laughs> playing a general. So it's really weird if you see him in, in, um, in, like, in episodes of the West Wing after watching this, because you keep expecting his arm to come off at some point. Uh, though obviously, you know, it, it never does. Uh, but Steve Ryan, he uh, sadly, he died um, uh, a few years, you know, after this. Um, so it kind of it's weird that the kind of arrested development um, and um, you know and the West Wing were kind of like his his kind of two final uh, like big projects that he was in, and there's such kind of opposites in terms of you know like the types of characters that he's playing. He he still plays the same kind of gruff um, character. Um, uh, but but he he kind of you know he just he, he, they just kind of not really one's like very kind of serious and one is very um, kind of kind of almost frivolous uh, you know he died in uh, two thousand seven um, age sixty mm. so you know uh, not not super old oh. but still okay. yeah you know 
and and uh, and I I just love everything that he does with this character because you know he's only in a few episodes you know he's he, he's not he's not a character that's in a ton but he makes such a big impression uh with with kind of like the the small role that he has um and I like as well that it kind of imp- it, it implies that the the like the Bluth company you know maybe in kind of like the the 70s didn't really follow the rules that much and you know like you feel a backstory with this character that really kind of helps almost ground the show a little bit uh, and so you kind of understand the idea of like oh the you know the the Bluth company have have been maybe shadier in the past let's say and he also he just like so much of the character is based around Ryan's presence too i feel like cuz it's a character who almost exclusively yeah. pops up to do the lesson and then go back away like he never like he, you never see him like get called out by the kids for like what they've done to him over the years he's always there just to service a lesson that's what i'm doing and then like you don't even get like a reaction shot back of him like after he imparts his wisdom and words like no. he's just like he's a static <laughs> no. character who just makes such a huge gut busting uh appearance like every single time and just disappears back in the nether basically yeah the only time someone brings up what he does is when buster makes his teaches his lesson to the to his family in this episode it's the only time someone calls yeah. out the whole lesson thing yeah this is this is a show with the last lesson there are no more lessons after this uh we get a little bit of a we get a bit of a flashback obviously to the narrator telling us uh, you know about the you know the prosthetic arm being t- torn off, and we see that's why he was leaving note, which is probably one of my favourite lines that Steve Ryan delivers. Like he does it so, I think he, just his voice is so great, uh, and he just he just really delivers those lines so well. And I like here as well that he sees Buster's missing hand, and he says, "You're one of George Blue's kids. Hey, I guess you'll be scaring children yourself now." <laughs> <laughs> which which Buster certainly has throughout the past. Including the last episode that I was yeah. on, <laughs> Motherboard yeah, Triple X. Michael kind of talks about the kind of the banana stand and, and you know George saying that uh, they've made you know Steve and and, and Joe made seven hundred dollars, which seems like a lot for selling frozen bananas in one day. <laughs> this is when Michael decides to get competitive again. So it doesn't take much. It takes one short phone call with his father, and he's immediately pushed into kind of upping the ante. Um, and then you know he he tells George Michael to go get the banana suit, uh, and and in in the night, um, Lucille is walking around looking for water and maybe um, finds um, Lucille. I like actually that maybe when she wakes up, the first thing she says is "Hello, George Michael." Um, so obviously, it kind of calls back a little bit to when um, when George Michael was in Reno and and he's kind of asleep and he wakes up. And uh, and he's and he says maybe is like the first thing he says. So both of them are kind of <laughs> thinking about each other in this third season. Um, and the narrator says that maybe he had found her blood sucking creature, uh, which I think is quite funny. <laughs> and the makeup the makeup on um, Jessica Walters is actually quite effective. I don't know how effective it would be in terms of like you know for a long running horror kind of series. Uh, but I think it kind of it really works in terms of this uh, this joke. George Michael is in the banana suit and is boiling hot. Um, and I like how when Michael says, "How are you doing there, champ?" George Michael goes, "Is my name Champ?" 
like as if the the heat exhaustion has kind of made him forget his own name and then obviously you know when michael says he can take a break he's like does that include the five minutes it takes to get in and out of this and he's like oh you're not getting in or out of it so it's like well don't it's like almost pointless there's no point taking the the break then this is where job he decides to uh he, he says attention everyone why go to a banana stand when we can make your banana stand? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, he brings out Barbara and Dee, and then I love the line, oh, don't God. worry, these young beauties have been nowhere near the bananas. <laughs> <laughs> and I like as well that, you know, Michael says, let's up the ante, and George Michael's like, then they're just going to do it, and it'll go back and forth all day. And then, of course, the narrator says, and they did. But... It was less entertaining than you might imagine. <laughs> and we get possibly one of the greatest kind of... Um, I, I don't know how... What, like, it's just this montage where we see the antics of, um, you know, uh, Michael and, and Job as they, they kind of com- compete against each other, uh, which basically finishes with, like someone in a banana suit with a rocket pack shooting off into the air and the fire and the fire service being called um (laughs) but over the top of it we have a number of the songs that have been featured so far in the show including uh ain't no big thing which is the kind of the kind of disco-y type thing which which goes all the way back to season one with the the living um you know the pageant where they had the the living portrait uh, and it was used for the reveal of the frontispiece. Uh, and then, of course, this big yellow joint, which is, you know, a classic. Uh, we get a, a quick stab of hot cocks, um, and we get a, a shout-out to Freedom, which, um, you know, free at last, which is uh, one of the classics from the pilot. Uh, and a very brief snippet of All You Need Is Smiles, before, of course, the, <laughs> the narrator says, It was kind of funny to Yellow Submarine. But who could afford? And I love how, as he says that, you they they have half a beat where you think they're going to play Yellow Submarine, and they don't, and they just have no music over the last few kind of slides, and it's such a great joke. And of course, the narrator goes, "So here's what happened at the end." And of course, they are once again boy fighting. Yeah, it's like, and I, I like so you can imagine them. You know, it, it very much feels like the implication is like they were when they were editing that together in the uh, documentary crew. <laughs> They were like playing Yellow Submarine over it, and then when they realized in post, like, oh, we can't get the rights to this. Well, we don't, we don't have enough resources to to actually put some more effort back into this. It's funny because the only song that they don't play that David Schwartz himself has composed is uh, "Balls in the Air," which of course was the montage song for um, Steve Holton and Uncle Mike training together. Uh, you know, which was I think the last time that we saw Steve Holt. Um, we find out that. <laughs> They've only been taking pesos, and that George Senior chose the location and the strippers and the sign, <laughs> uh, which I, you know, I just I like how George Senior manipulated Michael to go into competition with Job, and then he also did everything for Job as well. So even while he's stuck inside the apartment, he's still controlling both of them. And the weird thing is, he says that. He's laundering money from the Colombian deal through the banana shack, which doesn't make any sense because if you're keeping it as pesos, that isn't how money laundering works. You, you'd need to change it to dollars for the, the laundering to work in any way, um, <laughs> which is just kind of weird. Um, and then, you know, I love this line here where um, 
Michael once again showing that he's not the greatest and he he can make his own stinging remarks. Uh, when Job says, uh, you know, when Michael suggests that they, they teach teach um, dad a lesson, Job says, get the person who terrorized us most in our childhood. And Michael goes, she's still healing. Let's get Jay Walter Weatherman. I think it's interesting here that the, the kind of final kind of third of this episode is all kind of one elaborate um, lesson, as the title of the original episode would have been. But it works on so many levels because the people who are teaching each other a lesson changes so very quickly once we get to the final like minute. And it just switches from one person to another person to another person. Um, but first of all, of course, you know, we we get Michael, who needs Buster, to get them J. Walter Weatherman. And, of course, he has now come out against this being a thing. And he says, you know, read the button, mister. And I just, <laughs> just love, I love the way he screams that. And, of course, Michael has to read a button that is upside down. And he's like... The only scary thing about a one-armed man trying to scare someone is the fact... And, of course, Buster has to finish by saying... That he feels he that his one arm is good for nothing but trying to scare it. someone. And I like how Michael goes... <laughs> <laughs> but it's upside down and of course Buster then reveals his hook saying well you try and put a bun on with it and Job screams <laughs> demonstrating that of course this is scary and then of course Buster has to go stop screaming it's not scary um, which I, I just I just love because it's so t- it times so perfectly um, and then of course you know Michael says they don't want to be controlled by their father you know he says what's more pathetic than grown men being scared of their father and then of course Lucille walks in again saying I'm thirsty don't know why anyone hasn't got her some water um, and of course this is where she scares Michael and Buster and uh, Job and then of course by scaring Buster he brings his hook out again which scares Job and then he bringing his hand out, he scares them again, and they start throwing the hand around. And of course, the narrator over the top just goes, "This continued for a while." Yeah, just uh, yeah. it shows just how 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 little things have changed over like the last year or so that Buster's had his hook. Uh, I think back to like season two when uh, Michael and Joe, like when they were going to pick George Michael up from like uh, from Mother Boy Thirty, and they were talking about whether or not they wanted to bring Buster along, and they got, immediately got scared. And backed off, and then he interrupts by breaking the window and saying "knock knock." And Job like only refers to him as monster. He can't even himself think of his name. And then you flash forward, yeah. and it's still it's still going here. But now Buster is no longer self conscious. He's just very angry that it's still this visceral for Job. Like when he should be normalized to it. Yeah, and it's weird because of course the button and and Buster's stance actually sets up a lesson later on. So it's really, I don't know if Buster really believes it or if he's just, I don't know, it's really weird. Um, of course, once they get back to the, you know, the the apartment, we set up the, the final act here with Michael saying that the Colombians want their money back. And Job, of course, saying... Uh, <laughs> just hope they don't try to get even by circumventing the law. And of course, George Sr.'s like, what does that mean? <laughs> Michael suggests that, you know, the Colombians might kidnap him and, you know, leave the ankle behind. The weird thing is Michael seems to be setting this up before he's actually asked the painters if they will help him out. <laughs> so this is the moment that he helps the painters out. And of course, you know, he says, pose as Colombians. And of course, uh, Eblin says, 
but we are Guatemalan, won't he know the difference? Uh, of course, <laughs> none of the Blutes will know the difference. And we find out that Rolando was in The Groundlings. Uh, and he asks, in a line that is relevant even now in 2017, as the show returns from a, a five-year hiatus, is this going to be unscripted like Curb? Which is, of course, also uh, a reference to uh, Jeff Garland's participation in the episode as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 George Sr. Uh, asks Job, you know, what is going on? Uh, and I like this exchange here as well because, you know, he, he says, uh, you know, it's a J. Walter Weatherman lesson. And of course, George Senior refers to him as my own scare toy, which is such a kind of dismissive way to refer to this man who has been loyal to the Bluth Company after what was a, quite a serious injury. And then I like, of course, that he, he says, you know, he's going to go along with the lesson, but teach him one of their own. And he says, it's got to be a secret, OK, between a dad and his... His favourite son. <laughs> 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 and I love that hesitation. I love how he finds it so hard to refer to Job as his favorite son. Right, because like he repeats, um, he repeats part of it too. He's like his his favorite son. <laughs> like he has to, yeah, he has to brace himself <laughs> to think of somebody aside from Michael. Yeah, and I love as well how when Job says Job Bluth doesn't cave, and George goes. Yeah, you just did for me. And he's like, well, you... <laughs> you asked me to. <laughs> and now, um, I think the final scene of Bob Blah Blah. He, he does this thing of, you know, talking about uh, establishing fault in a divorce uh, and talks about infidelity. And I like how he says, my client, this being Tobias, has not pursued sex outside of this marriage. And Tobias chimes in with, nor in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Would obviously undermine Bob, Bob Lovell's defense because it shows him not trying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, Lindsay insists she's done everything to make the marriage work. And then, um, you know, Bob Lovell asks what her plans are for this evening. She's basically been forced into this, this thing where, you know, she's going to admit that she's going out. And of course, Treat says, don't answer that, which is exactly what Bob Lovell wants. Um, and he says, why don't we stop for the day so Mrs. Fionke can get to her date with her mysterious Mr. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, uh, blah, blah. <laughs> which, of course, you know, is... I I feel like they've spent, like, six episodes just building up to that, that payoff of that joke there. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> he says, at 8.30, unless you want to sit at the bar. I like, as well, this moment here with Tobias, uh, because even though it... It does seem to be like Tobias is coming on to blah, blah, blah. So once again, it plays into, you know, that, that kind of character trait of Tobias's. Um, I like how he's just kind of saying, you know, uh, I'm, I, he feels that this is a friend. Um, and, you know, he just wants to, you know, go out for the evening. Of course, Bob blah, blah, can't because he is working on the, <laughs> the blah, 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 blog. Um, to which, <laughs> to which. To which Tobias says, you, sir, are a mouthful. <laughs> and I don't know if he really is working on his blog and then he's going to go and see Lindsay or if that's just a lie, but it is a great joke. We get the end of the uh, the, the, the kind of gangy story where, um, you know, maybe shows Mort Myers, her grandfather, and he says, that's terrifying. Who did that for you? Industrial light and magic. And of course she says... <laughs> Copelson plastic and silicon, which leads to I don't know. This to me feels like a hack joke, where he says, "Did he do Land of the Dead?" and maybe says, 
He's been in Beverly Hills for years. You know, I th- I think Arrested Development is better than that joke, but I, it kind of works with um, Jeff Garland's personality because he can kind of sell that joke. Not only that, but do people even remember Land of the Dead? Like, <laughs> like it's a very lesser movie of the Romero ones. I, I yeah. really didn't like it. Yeah, like, yeah I mean, yeah, it's, it's got that's the one with Dennis, uh, uh, with uh, Den- Dennis Hopper, right? Yeah, I feel like if- I don't know. I've never seen it. A bad rich guy. And the guy from the Ventalist. Right. So, yeah, I guess it would have had... So, I guess in the, in the time of the show, it would have just come out, like, a couple months earlier. So, that's probably the best explanation. That, but I guess that's yeah. one... I guess that's one of their more of-the-time jokes that isn't quite as funny when you look back at it. Because, like, when you see so many of these jokes yeah. that are of their time, like, all the, all the Iraq, George Bush stuff has, I think, got an almost greater level of humor because of how dated it is. But this maybe just kind of falls a little flat. Like, oh, yeah... Oh yeah, Land of the Dead. Yeah, I guess that's a... It also feels a little bit like a tiny bit of like an advert. It doesn't like it, it not like so much as they're they're kind of promoting the film, but it just feels like it's a reference for the sake of you know, Fox saying, Well, this film's out at this time, make sure you mention it on this show. And it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't really feel like it's a joke that the writers would do, but you know, they did. They wrote it, so and of course we get the, the grand finale of everything, and this is probably one of my favourite kind of like sustained sequences uh you know of um of arrested development you know like obviously the montage earlier with all the songs was great uh we get another little montage within this uh which is also quite funny um but first of all you know we get the kind of um the acting where (laughs) george senior keeps pointing out everything that is wrong with the scene but obviously you know all of the other people keep playing into the scene which you know obviously that is the the first rule of improv, you've got to really commit to the bit, and they do. Um, and <laughs> I like how they have an ankle monitor deactivator, and George Senior's like, oh, I've been meaning to get one of those. And he's like, oh, a blanket, who thought of that? This is very nice. Like Everything is like really kind of... And then this is, of course, where the, the, the painters basically knock George Senior out as they put him into the box. Um, uh, and uh, you know just as george senior is saying i forgot my ipod which again is a uh, you know that really places this in kind of like 2005 and <laughs> i like how they have the um you know the uh, the sound effects thing um but before we get to that we we see you know michael and job um set about to work building a a colombian hut this is where we get the debut of uh, a yellow boat um which is a perfect <laughs> Um, parody of Yellow Submarine where we find out that we're living alone in a yellow boat and then they say we're making a stand in a yellow boat which doesn't really make that much sense but I like that instead of being a submarine it's a boat and instead of everyone being in the submarine it's just one person alone <laughs> in a yellow boat um, once again as as the uh, you know this is this is done to the the kind of the less than compelling footage is how it is phrased by the narrator and as it finishes, uh, the narrator goes, This is how bad it is. Which I just love how he's kind of capping off these, um, you know, the, these montages. And Michael puts on the effects and uh, we get a little bit of It Ain't Easy Being White comes back. And then we get a train whistle blowing and then we get to some jungle effects. And I like how <laughs> the one guy says, Put the hostage here by the Ottoman. Which is <laughs> <just> like... <laughs> <laughs> it's good improv but it's 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 kind of bad for the kind of the the situation they're trying to establish um and i like how you know they're like um you're in colombia 
and um, you know the the one who was trained with the groundlings, he goes, and you just missed the last train that will come through the jungle for three days. And I like how Job goes, he's good. <laughs> and uh, Michael says, he was a groundling. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's weird because I feel these days they would say UCB. I don't think they'd say groundlings because that feels a little bit more kind of, you know, late 90s, uh, early 2000s. Or they would talk about like Second uh, City. Yeah, I feel like groundlings these days feels a little bit kind of long in the tooth in terms of, you know, an improv group. Many great people went through groundlings, but... <laughs> I just, I just think, uh, and of course he, he said that he only took classes. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know. Not an experienced player, but we'll start from there. Yeah. And, and, you know, they, they, this is where some of the, uh, the, the painters kind of get into it, where they're like, you know, you should pay your workers what they deserve and not make them buy their own supplies. Not just the painting, <laughs> the sanding, the taping is very consuming. Like, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of kind of like talk that doesn't really sound like Colombians. Um, and I like as well how, you know, the narrator reveals that Michael, you know, decided that this is the, the point to teach the lesson. Um, and he only gets to say, and that's why, before he gets cut off by George Sr. grabbing the gun. And of course saying that he'll shoot, he'll take you all out. And of course Michael <laughs> pulling off his, um, you know, revealing that these are the painters. Mm-hmm. And George Sr. shoots someone who then yells, oh my god, my arm. <laughs> I like how Michael's like, did you just shoot off this guy's arm? And he slows down as he realises what's going on. And Jay Walt Weatherman, of course, says, And that's why you don't teach your father a lesson. <laughs> and then, of course, we start to get uh, like a, a, a really complex set of double crosses and triple crosses as we find out that Job was in on it with um, George Sr. Is the, is the initial kind of reveal. And then, of course, you know, um, Job and, and Michael then start fighting over the fact that Job has betrayed him. Um, and then, of, of course, George Sr. runs to grab his camera um, and also starts saying, you're going out of frame, which I think is quite funny. Um, and I like how, like, Michael and Job are both screaming, I will kill you. And then, of course, um, as they get to the window, Michael falls over the balcony, or so we think. And then, of course, George Sr. kind of screams, no. And, of, and I, I like how... Um, Will Arnett really plays it up as Job here, where he's like, Dad, it was an accident. I'm sorry. Yes, but at the same and time, then, I think course, there's at least one point in that where he's still kind of smiling as he says it. Like, I think, I don't know if he does it the whole time, but there's <laughs> yeah. at least one scene where, like, he's kind of half-spin, like, he can't. It's a little, like, second-long foreshadowing where it's like he, he's kind of letting the audience know that he's in on the bit. Michael pops up from next to the um, uh, next to the balcony. I can only assume, obviously, earlier in the show, uh, Lucille said something very quickly, which is the outside of the building is being painted. So obviously there would be, you know, <laughs> structure set up for the painters. So obviously that is how mm. Michael has been able to kind of go over the balcony and not fall, is because there is, you know, some kind of scaffolding outside the building <clears throat> Uh, that he's able to go on and then we find out here you know that job was actually in on it with michael and not with george senior <laughs> and he kind of was in on with george senior as a way to set george senior up um and jay walter weatherman is also in on it um except we find out that jay walter weatherman is also in on it with buster as well because Buster enters, and I like how he goes, look at my home, it's, which is such a, like, an unnatural line for him to say <laughs> as he picks the gun up. 
Uh, it just always amuses me that that's like the way he re- kind of reveals that this is a setup. And of course, a policeman appears out of nowhere, and <laughs> Buster, you you can see obviously if you already know what's happening, you can see that the gun has been placed into his fake hand. But here's the thing that is really confusing: how did he do that? Because his real hand is covered with the hook, and he then has this yeah. um, yes. fake hand. He has to grip it. Fake. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How did he pick up the gun? <laughs> I get those fingers through the, through the trigger, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Of course, then, at this point, as the policeman is there, he shoots Buster, and Michael says, and this is the really revealing part where he goes, he goes, Buster's good hand just came flying off. And as he realizes, he once again slows down. Um, and, of course, Buster turns and says, as he pulls the hook off his good hand, he says, And that's why you don't use a one-armed person to scare someone. Which, of course, is what he's just done. So he's <laughs> yeah. gone against his own principles. And that, that's, that's why I love this, because you go from, you know, Michael and Joe being against each other and George Sr. being on, in on it, to George Sr. being the one taught the lesson, to then Michael and Joe being taught the lesson by you know buster and it's such a kind of great little set of turns at the end yeah and i like that that character uh those dynamics the way they're shifted at the end i think that's why i love this episode so much is that it's an episode where where it's a a job and michael coming together against george senior episode that doesn't end with them immediately backtracking on the progress they've made because like so often you see that kind of stuff where they'll be coming together in some way and it might get deflated somewhat or subverted by them kind of coming back to each other's opposite sides. But here they still end the episode together and on the same team and unified. And it's only really deflated by Buster. But even then, that's kind of an interesting thing because Buster ends an episode with the upper hand. No pun intended, really. But, but like, you know, with him, like, pulling it off on all of them and George Sr. being the ultimate loser in this case, which I find really kind of fun. And I also love how... You know, I was kind of thinking, uh, rewatching this episode, it reminded me a lot of uh, the community episode a few years later called uh, Conspiracy Theories and Interior Design, where uh, Kevin Corrigan yeah. shows up as a drama teacher. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah. the last, like, five minutes or so are just, like, uh, Jeff, Annie, the dean, and then Kevin Corrigan all pulling these gambits <laughs> on each other. And, like, it's revealed at the end that the dean had been, like, conspir- conspiring with every single person <laughs> in the plot, but, like, <laughs> but with no endgame in sight. So it's like he was just doing it to be in a conspiracy, and he everyone calls him out on being so reckless with it. I'm sorry! I just... I just want to have fun with you guys, and... I go crazy, cooped up in my little office, and... <sighs> time travel is really hard to write about and it's the exact opposite here with j walter witherman where he's like in it with everyone but seems to have a long-term goal in mind where the ultimate lesson is going to be teaching this person something that person something and then these guys something all at the end with busters reveal which i find an interesting compliment to look at as a comedy episode yeah yeah i re- i really like that buster makes a stance and makes this plan against his father and his siblings and it's completely independent from his mother or from uh, his actual father, the, the usual plots from Buster. It's Buster making a stand about people being used to teach lessons. 
which is, which is kind of odd, but I like it. I like that Buster is given his own plot. Yeah, I think it, I think it does kind of mirror the end a little bit of that. Where uh, in that episode of Community as well, it's you know it's worth noting that uh, if you conspire with every person that approaches you, you're not even really conspiring with anyone. Exactly. Um, which in this episode, they're actually quite careful to make sure that Buster gets the upper hand. Like you said, no pun intended, uh, over his brothers, but they get the upper hand over George Senior, and it's like. The, the cons- each conspiracy is actually kind of separated and they, they don't know about each other so that's that's why it works um, and then we get the on the next where it's we're told that maybe finds a, a way to scare an entire generation and of course we hear that this Christmas Terra has a new face <laughs> and of course Lucille who I think in the entire episode after the kind of the facelift has only ever said the words I'm thirsty Gangi says I'm thirsty again uh and of course, when Mortmeyer says we should start production on Gangi too, maybe goes well. I know she wanted a skin peel, yeah, which I think is weird because it's like Mortmeyer doesn't seem to be listening to what maybe is actually saying. Um, <laughs> and of course, the trailer is narrated by Will Arnett oh. doing a kind of voice, doing a trailer voiceover t- style, which obviously suits Will Arnett's voice perfectly. Right, I was going to say this is a great um, timing for this for this episode. <laughs> so like a Batman movie comes out, <laughs> or it's just yes, come out, really. yeah. <laughs> That is, yeah, it is pretty much his Lego Batman voice that he's using in that trailer. So, uh, is there, I mean, it's worth mentioning as well that there is a, um, the, on the on the next, there was a, a, a shortcut scene where Tobias goes to this restaurant saying that he, he needs to get someone back and, you know, he can't deny how he feels. Um, to which Lindsay, who is sitting there with Bob Loblaw, says, um, you know, that she's she's happy to see Tobias. And of course, Tobias is like, oh, Lindsay, I didn't notice you there. Um so obviously he was going to get <laughs> Bob Loblaw back. Um, I don't know why they cut those 18 seconds out of this episode, because it would actually tie up the whole Bob Loblaw storyline, because by the next episode, the family have basically stopped using Bob Loblaw altogether. Um, so that would have actually tied that off quite nicely. But this is, you know, essentially the last appearance of Bob Loblaw, and it would have been, I guess, the final part of the episode if they'd have used it in the on the next Um but they did not. So, so I, I think I think it's quite interesting that they that they kind of decided to cut out. Saying that in the next episode, you know, Michael gives the excuse that they basically burned through all the money and they need another hundred grand to get another lawyer on retainer and all that kind of stuff. So it does kind of set up the storyline. But I don't think it would have taken anything away from this episode to have had that kind of cut scene at the end there. I, you know, I, I think it's quite a, a funny little scene. Right, and it also feels uh, like it's kind of taken with a payoff too. Just the fact that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the, the, the yeah, last the note for that plot. like it feels like the last note is like the law. Admittedly, maybe the funniest joke of that plot is him talking about the blah 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 blog. But it just kind of just ended yeah. on that note instead of like going with a payoff of like oh well what happened with you know what like what became of like Lindsay's attraction to that guy or like which he in the way it, it almost seems to imply that like. With what we see in the next episode, it almost seems to imply that he stood her up at the bar, or that she was just kind of thrown because of because of what happened with deposition, or or what. But it does kind of throw a different spin, having the uh, the cutscene versus not having it. I think. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. if you know, if anyone hasn't seen the cutscene, I suggest you check it out because it, it, like we say, it does kind of tie up that that storyline a little bit neater. So, is there anything else that we need to discuss about this episode? Mm, I think I think we covered I think we covered most of it. I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, if there's nothing else to say then I'll say on the next episode of um, I Made a Huge Mistake we're going to be talking about some SOBs woohoo
Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> they want to they wanna save some blues. And my guests will be Keith, Alison, and Enrique Del Castillo. So uh, join us again <laughs> to talk about uh, saving some blues. Uh, but yes, otherwise... Yeah. Let's go to some plugs, and I'm going to start with Enrique. Well, as I said before, I have a small podcast about TV shows. We are currently, I think our next, our most recent podcast will be about The Young Pop. We are going to record it tomorrow, so it will have come out a few weeks before this podcast comes out. Uh, well, it's called El Estrimator Cable, it's in Spanish. So if you want to practice Spanish or somehow understand Spanish or speak Spanish, you can listen to it. You can find it on iTunes as El Estrimator Cable. And also we have a, a Twitter account called Podcast Smack. That's in the initials of the, the whole title. It's shorter, but it also makes us be confused with a Smackdown-related podcast. It has happened before. <laughs> <laughs> and Keith, do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at KHAllison94 or on Letterboxd at uh, Keith Allison. Great stuff. Well, thanks to you guys for joining me today. And thank you, Darren. Thank you for inviting us. And otherwise, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.